And I am looking sexy. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. This episode is sponsored by Gaslight Software. They're putting on a Mastering Backbone training in San Francisco at the Mission Bay Conference Center, December 3rd through 5th of this year. This three-day intensive course will forever change the way you develop the front end of your web applications. For too long, many web developers have approached the front end as drudgery. No more. We'll help you build the skills to write front-end code you can love every bit as much as your server-side code. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 33 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you live from the DJ sphere of Orem, Utah. We also have Jameson Dance. Oh, gosh, it gets worse every time. I'm sorry, AJ, your intro is so good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, and that's Trek Glovoski. Oh, very, very close. Good job. <laughs> you want to straighten it out for us? You, you can just call me Trek. Everyone does. Okay. How many generations removed are you from Poland or whatever? So, so weirdly enough, uh, I'm a first-generation American, so my, my parents are foreign, um, but my, my dad is Belgian, not Polish. Uh-huh. Uh, nationally, uh, but of Polish descent. Oh, okay. That's interesting. It, yeah. It, my driver's license is weird and everything is misspelled. My voter registration is spelled wrong. It's kind of a nightmare. <laughs> it's why I just, it's why I just go by track. I try to snag at, you know, track as a user handle everywhere. So I'm at track on Twitter. Uh, it just makes my life easier. Yeah, that makes sense. I have to say that, uh, if your voter registration is, is messed up, I hope you're voting for that other guy. And I'm not going to be specific about my political <laughs> leanings because I, I don't want to start a firestorm on a pro- programming podcast for that. So we'll just leave it there. Anyway, we're going to be talking about Ember.js today. Now, I know that Yehuda and Tom Dale work on it. Do you work on it too, or are you just kind of an expert user? Uh, a little bit of both. So I, I hang out of the secret uh, volcano base that we have uh, with Yehuda and Tom. And uh, my contributions. Oh, that's why your are, audio quality is so good. Yeah, we're at the volcano base. It's really is beaming yeah, to a really satellite in space. Yeah, volcano net <laughs> is awesome. So uh, my contributions are usually uh, documentation and article writing, and I just got started in that because I was frankly I was just trolling Yehuda on Twitter about Ember, and uh, he was very patient to a point, and then just stopped responding to me. And uh, <laughs> after that, I was like, <laughs> all right, I, I'm just going to learn this myself, and I just started reading through the code. And Ember actually has very well-written code, but six, seven months ago when I started writing docs, wow, even more than that, nine months ago when I started writing docs for it, um, very little inline documentation. Uh, so I beefed that up quite a bit. Yeah. So uh, let's just get into it and start talking about it. One of the things that uh, I remember hearing about initially with Ember was that it was based on Sprout Core. It was supposed yeah, to be Sprout Core 2, and then it evolved into something more different or than that i'd I'd say the sprout core pedigree is mostly for uh you know tossing the guy a bone but like a lot of the run loop stuff uh was definitely inspired by inspired by sprout core very little of the code that exists now i think was in sprout core either one or two very very different and sprout core's sprout core's whole whole shtick was um you know widgets and desktop like experience um and that is definitely not i think a pattern that people like 
um, generally, and that's definitely not something that any of the modern JavaScript frameworks are going with, um, Ember included in that. I, I think it depends. I think um, when you deal with people who come from a background sort of like what most of the people I think on this podcast come from, where it's it's Ruby or Node.js, and you have you kind of have full control of the stack and things like that. Yeah, they tend to like the frameworks that are more oriented around like data management and things like that and don't give you that application look and feel where I've, I'm working for a client right now that is much more into the enterprise thing. They came from a .NET background and they really, you know, if it's not .NET, they, they kind of like the Java stuff. And so they're much more about some of the frameworks that give them more of that application look and feel. So we're actually using XJS for all yeah, of our mean, stuff. And it, it gives it are, that. Those... Yeah, it, we're, we're building uh, Windows XP apps in, in JavaScript is what we're doing. Oh, wow. Is that, that's wow. what they look like anyway. So Oh, yeah. this is the, they're in the browser, but yeah, they look like uh, they belong in, in Windows XP. Yeah, well, they're they're a cheap knockoff of Windows XP kind of style. They're freaking ugly, but you know they they hired some designers to make them pretty. But it, that's beside the point. This this is more of a here's your data. We're gonna bind it to stuff. We're gonna uh, manage you know the interaction between it and the backend server and things like that. Right. 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 Now I I know the way I know Yehuda is that uh, we've interacted at some of the Ruby conferences, and uh, it seems like. I've heard a few people kind of talk about Ember like it's the rails of JavaScript, front-end JavaScript. Is is that fair? Yeah, I'd, probably not. I'd say that's probably not a fair comparison. I think people say that just because the code base is fairly large, although much smaller than the road, Rails code base. I think it, it gets the, the, the moniker of magical because the framework handles a lot of things for you, um, which is obviously a very Rails-like pattern. Mm -hmm. But it's not like Rails started that pattern. Um, they did definitely popular, popularize it. So it has a lot of the same players in it. I think a lot of the people who are using Ember to write UIs in the browser also use Rails as a backend. So there's definitely a lot of like cross you know pollination from that. But uh, I, I mean, I, I also use Rails, and I don't think it's a fair comparison. Right. I have to wonder, um, and this is something that came up. I think we were talking about to do MVC. You know, they've they've given these examples. Uh, I think Yehuda pointed out that to do MVC really isn't a great uh, showcase for what Ember gives you. So I, I'm a little curious as to what is, and then maybe we can talk about why that is and what Ember actually does for you. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I'm, I agree with Yehuda that to do MVC is not a great demonstration of what Ember does. Um, so uh, most Ember developers, at least the ones that I've met, also are professional backbone developers, um, which often comes as a surprise to people. People think of it of the situation really being Ember versus backbone versus Angular. And in fact, they're just very different tool sets used to build very, 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 very different kind of applications. Um, so backbone, to start with the counterpoint, is great for interactions where the user is uh, coming in. It's a casual interaction, usually very brief. The types of interactions uh, involve a fairly flat view hierarchy, not a lot of deep state changes. And then the user, user usually leaves after a short amount of time. And, and Backbone is like, that's the sweet spot for it, right? Um, it gets to be very simple, clean code in the framework because it can make assumptions like 
the application isn't going to be running for an entire day. So you can deal with memory management issues by basically saying, man, this isn't true about everything. I'm not trying to knock Backbone's memory management. But it, they do have a huge advantage of just being able to say, like, well, eventually someone's going to leave this page and all the objects, objects will be garbage collected. And Ember applications, I think, the types of things people are writing with them are, are longer running. People will spend all day sitting in them, working in them. And usually the application, as you interact with it, has deep view hierarchy changes in reaction to your uh, data coming in or in reaction to user behavior. Yeah, I, I can definitely see that. I've, I've looked at Ember quite a bit. I mean, like like you said, you know, there are a lot of Rails folks that use it. And, um, you know, it it gives you a lot of the, that magic and things that, that do the things that you want it to. Um, one of the things that really appealed to me that I didn't get out of Backbone was and and you've really touched on this is that you know it kind of manages all of your objects for you so that if you um if you change or try to retrieve an an object one way or the other it maintains it itself and keeps it uh consistent a- across multiple uh, widgets or multiple views and uh with backbone you know if you go and retrieve it again you might get different data back and you kind of have to manage that consistency yourself Right, exactly. And and you could totally do that in Backbone. Like I'm not saying, obviously, you can't build large applications in Backbone because a lot of people do. Um, but you do take a lot of that pain and that extra those extra requirements on yourself. And yeah, Ember, Ember does a lot of data management um, just for you with the assumption that when an object updates, any visual representations based on that object should also update. Right. And, and you know, like you're saying, it's, it's really nice in the sense that... Uh... If if I want to do something with Backbone JS, just because I have some quick dumb little app that I want to throw together, that really is designed for okay, you know, you do a handful of interactions and you're done, you know, or I have a small set of data that I can really just keep in in memory myself and not really worry about, you know, too complex of interactions between it and other objects, then you know, Backbone's great and it's so it's so slick and so minimal that. You know, it it really does a great job of that. But yeah, it seems like if you're getting into a more complex with with a high number of uh, references between your different objects and things like that, and uh, a large amount of data that you have to manage, then Ember is is much more the way to go. At least that's what I've found, and I, I think that bears fruit. If you look at the type of applications that people use each framework for, Backbone definitely ends up being used a lot more like Foursquare's maps and lists or like the interactive parts of Airbnb. Very user-focused, casual interactions. Someone's going to come to the site, spend maybe 20, 30 seconds on it, and then move on to another experience, possibly within that same application. And if you look at the stuff that Ember's being used to build, um, so I work at Groupon, and we have an external-facing product called Groupon Scheduler, and it's essentially appointment-based business help uh, for things like hairdressers, massage therapists. And uh, there is an expectation that customers will be spending their entire day in this. You know, Squares, Squares Web Properties, um, their sort of analytics tool, uh, the redesign Zendesk, um, just thing, things that are very often internal-facing, um, but sometimes customer-facing, and that someone spends hours and hours and hours in. Right. So I'm also wondering, and, and I haven't played with uh, some of the aspects of Ember, but what if you only want the data aspect of it? You don't want the other parts that render out the, the pages or what, you know, do the views and things like that. Can you just pull one piece out and, and use that and then use something else for the rest? 
Uh, yeah, definitely. Ember is written very modularly, um, although we ship it as a single compiled source. Um, there are like five or six separate libraries that work in tandem. And uh, the object the object system and the metal layer is basically what you're talking about. And I think there's even like a node package for people that want to use Ember's object system in node. Um, not a thing I would do, but it, it's available. People have asked for it, so we, we made it modular. Interesting. So what struggles do you see people having when they start playing with Ember? Learning is is tough for people for, for two reasons. One, our, uh, I think our API documentation is much stronger than it was um, back in like January, February, where I think people really started to talk about Ember frequently. and and But our like guides and tutorials are still pretty lacking. Um, we're still relying on community members to pr- provide those for us. Um, and that's tough. And the framework, you know, we're still pre-release. Um, it's not even in beta yet. We're still doing pre-releases, um, which means the API can and does change pretty frequently. So there's a, there's the router that got added um, like six, seven weeks ago. Um, people have been playing with that in applications, and we've gotten a lot of really good feedback about sort of the pain points and what works well, and we're considering redesigning the external-facing API. Internally, it'll behave pretty much the same. Um, but it'll have a separate API where um, views, I think, are going to become sort of an optional thing that you implement if you want to respond to user events and templates and state will be much closer tied to each other. So when you enter into an application and begin navigating through it, you're essentially expressing the desire to move the application into a different application state. And the template hierarchy should just update to reflect that. Right. So. So that's the first part of it. The second part of it is um, the types of applications that Ember targets are usually new for people who have traditionally done web application development. Either they've been mostly on the server side and are starting to move into the client, or their client behavior has really been very DOM-focused, very page manipulation, um, you know, essentially making, uh, I think what Jeremy Ashkenes calls, like, islands of richness occur. And Ember is much more intended to take over the entire browser and Treat it like a legitimate client platform in the same way that you would treat like an iPhone or Android phone or the desktop itself. So it's funny, we get people coming to us who have done traditional web development and it seems very hard to them because they're very used to um, jQuery's event pattern. And so Backbone seems very approachable to them. And uh, Ember seems difficult because there's a lot of new patterns that you need to pick up. But conversely, we get people who come from like Cocoa development and they're like, oh, this is a dream. This is like a slim down Cocoa with all the cruftiness removed, like it's exactly just the pieces I want. And those two perspectives are just very amusing to me. I'm, I'm hoping that Jameson or AJ will jump in with questions or comments. Cause I can sit so here and I, throw questions I all day. With, I can jump in with the perspective as a, one of these backbone developers that you talk about who has looked at Ember. Um, we're, we're writing a large persistent application in backbone. And I've looked at, I've been looking at this uh, page you posted in the show notes where you kind of go through, um, the intro to Ember, I guess, and you show your kind of destructor function that cleans up all the memory stuff in your view. And we definitely have this code littered throughout our app. Um, we've found that in testing, lots of weird things happen, and you have to basically do memory management in a memory managed language, which is weird. So the the thing, I mean, that's appealing to me where things get cleaned up automatically for you because there's lots of gotchas in, in doing that uh, well and correctly in Backbone. But the thing that appeals to me about Backbone is that it's such a small area of, of functionality to understand that 
it's really easy to focus 100% on implementing my app. Whereas with Ember, I, I feel like I have to spend weeks on Ember before I can actually go and get stuff done. Because the, the surface area of functionality that it provides is so large and so different, like you said, from the normal like web developer tool set and experience. Uh, yeah. So, so basically, if I just want to go get We're stuff done, it's so much easier to use Backbone. Uh, where I don't, I don't have the time to invest in in learning Ember for a couple weeks. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. I mean, it's it's always an investment you're gonna have to make when picking up a new technology, whether you want to spend the time or not. You know, the the example I usually bring up to people is D three versus Backbone, um, which sounds like a crazy comparison, but like you can you can use Backbone to drive SVG visualizations very very easily, and yet D three is a is a framework for doing visualizations in the browser that is specifically designed for that. And the learning curve for it is massive. I mean, it's, it's a very difficult library to gain mastery of. But when, but when you do, you're able to do much more complex visualizations with greater ease. And it's, uh, I mean, it's just a perennial problem with, with developers in general, right? There's always new technologies you're going to need to learn. Um, I mean, you, you could also say that Backbone has a learning curve higher than just jQuery. Um, it's pretty slim, and, and yet people are willing to, to pay that because they get payoff pretty, pretty quickly. But yeah, it is, it is, it is tough to, to, it's a tough sell for people to learn something that has uh, quite a bit of a large API exposed to them. I guess you just have to trust uh, that the people working on it uh, are doing it for a good reason. And uh, I, I think as there are more Ember applications in the wild, people are going to see the sort of uh, quality of application that Ember lets you build very quickly and are going to be willing to make that investment. I mean, the similar thing happened with Rails, right? Like people just didn't understand why You'd use Rails over something like PHP, and uh, the 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 sort of force multiplication that you get from using a framework once you've learned it uh, is a huge advantage, especially when you work on teams or sort of picking a technology that you want to to continue to use in your career for the next few years. Yeah, we we've also seen something similar with Rails versus Sinatra in Ruby, and um, you know Sinatra is really simple if you just want to spin up you know something fast. The flip side is, is the second that you have to deal with some of the complexity that's just built into Rails, you start to realize, okay, well, um, you know, these apps over here that I've been building so far are really well suited to the simpler framework, and these apps over here, I want to build them in, in the larger framework, you know, even though there is a little bit more of a learning curve in the sense that, you know, the surface area of the API is a, a lot larger, the flip side is, is that it removes a lot of the pain you have. And so if you're going to be building an app that you wind up running into this pain, then you're going to want the larger framework. But that doesn't discount the value of the smaller framework when you have something that really just only needs the functionality in the smaller framework. Because then the other one is kind of overkill. I think totally. some of this gets down to, to developer styles. Some people prefer like reinventing the wheel. And some people like building on top of other stuff. And I don't know, some people prefer small libraries and then they they invent a lot of the functionality on top of these small libraries and some people like giant frameworks that do everything for them and then you you put little pieces of functionality on top of the framework i i, I, I don't push, know i guess i lean i have to push back on that just a little bit and really for me you know i'm i'm a consultant i i build stuff for people you know and that's that's how i get paid um as opposed to being in a full-time job and uh, my clients they're paying me not only to build it right but to build it quickly, and to make and and the the frameworks really pay off for that. So if if I want it built right, 
and I know that the the that Ember JS handles all of the use cases that I need, and it will um, it'll allow me to move ahead more quickly. Then that's great. But uh, if if I'm working on an application and it turns out that um, I don't need all of the features in Ember, you know that I can actually move ahead more quickly with Backbone. Then I'll use Backbone, and I think I think what we're talking about here isn't developer style. I, I think in some situations, in some employment situations or application situations, you know, where there's no pressure, then sure you can reinvent the wheel all you want. But when you're in a pressure situation where they want it done quickly and correctly, then you're going to pick the right tool for the right job. And sometimes it's one, and sometimes it's the other. And it's not it's not down to your preference; it's down to what's going to work for the problem. Well, I would love to see an employment situation with no pressure. Yeah. Tell me if they're hiring and I'll go there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think there are different... So, so I agree with part of what you said, where if you're consulting, you need to get it done. I mean, you need to get it done right, yeah. But you also need to get it done as cost-effectively as possible for yes. the client. I, I work at a product company and we are working like mad to get this product shipped. And there's a lot of benefit in us understanding every single step of the stack. And people talk about Backbone. Um, it's so small that there's nothing to understand, right? So everything that exists in our app, like we have done, and that's a plus and a negative. Like it's a plus because we understand it all. It's a negative because maybe other people have done it in a better way. But it, it is appealing that, yeah, we have to do all this like, event cleanup stuff and destroying elements manually when views get destroyed and stuff. But like, we know that that works because we did it. Um, and, and we didn't have to go learn someone else's implementation of it. Yeah, I, I would posit that's still a part of the description of the problem where you value, you know, having built it yourself and understanding the full stack as opposed to using a stack that maybe you don't understand completely, but, you know, trust the API. In any case, let's and, get back to Ember. Yeah, I mean, so... Just to talk about this, like you have to remember, software projects continue to live over time, and like the code you have handwritten today totally makes sense to your team right now. But six months or twelve months from now, when it's a different set of people, possibly a different team, right? Like they need to go into your app and learn everything from square one. Whereas if you'd been writing this in Ember and they were Ember, you know, people who who knew Ember already, the surface area that they need to understand for what is custom about your application is much, much smaller. Um, And that makes skill sets just way portable. Like, I'd be very, very comfortable adding someone who knew Ember to my team and getting them up and running in almost no time at all. I wouldn't have to explain, uh, you know, particular ways that we were doing memory management or particular styles of programming or particular organization techniques that we had because I can just assume that they know that because they're an Ember developer. And, that you know, that's a huge benefit. Yeah, and, I guess, and you can't boil it down to just one thing or another. I mean, there there are usually uh, myriad reasons for using one tool or the other. I, I really want to get back to Ember.js and, and talk about some of the other features that it has. Uh, one that I'm really interested in is rendering. It, it seems like it uh, does some pretty interesting magic with Ember. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of interesting techniques we take. One of the first things that we wanted to do, and when I say we, I really mean the Ember people who spend a lot of time coding, not just me who writes most of the documentation, um, but to make sure that multiple data changes that could cause a view to render multiple times don't actually trigger multiple renders. Like the DOM, the DOM is extremely costly to, to, to draw into. Um, if you have a lot of DOM nodes, it's going to slow down your application. Like that is almost always the bottleneck. JavaScript itself 
is pretty speedy, um, especially in modern interpreters. So one of the things we, that Ember tries to minimize is uh, if a particular element in the DOM is, is essentially needs to be redrawn when data changes, that we're essentially, we have uh, a run loop that we run ourselves, um, and DOM drawing occurs fairly late in that run loop, which means we can aggregate data changes that are occurring and figure out exactly what DOMs need to be redrawn and only what DOM sections only need to be redrawn and only do that once instead of multiple times per per data change. So how do you do that? We just talked to the Angular people a while ago and and they do this thing where they they just do dirty checking because on on every like callback basically they could have stuff changed. So XHR requests, set timeouts and stuff. Yeah, you know, I don't I don't know sort of the deep internals. This is part of it's probably the part of the framework that I'm least familiar with. Um, Yehuda would be better able to answer that, or Chris Selden, uh, who has been the contributor doing a lot of the performance stuff for us. So, so I would just say uh, magic, <laughs> magic, <laughs> right? And and it seems like we've been getting into the philosophy, maybe a little bit of some of these frameworks. So, what what is your take on uh, on philosophy, the philosophy of em- Ember? Ember is definitely. Uh, it's interesting. I don't know. It's an interesting question. What do you What do you mean by philosophy? Maybe I need more more clarification. So you know, do you like magic? Do you not like magic? Do you care? See, yeah, you know, people people often claim that it's magic, um, and, and maybe I just don't feel like that because I've I've taken a lot of time to read through the code and like I understand exactly what's happening and why it's happening. Um, in the same way that like if you have a large code base that you've worked on and you abstract things out into helper classes or you know low level functionality that you don't deal with on a daily basis, like that doesn't seem magical to you, and and because you typed it right. Um, so essentially, you you can treat Ember. As uh, as if you had a team of highly paid programmers who did ninety five percent of your project for you, um, and then just said, "Okay, you finish up the last part, the, the the part with the user experience, and then we'll call it done." Right. One one other thing that gives me some confidence in the the framework. I mean, you can go look at the APIs and and get a feel for whether or not it makes sense to you. But um, my understanding is also that uh, most, if not all, of Ember is actually tested um, using QUnit or something. Yep, everything's tested with QUnit. Uh, we use Travis CI for continuous integration, so commits um, can't get in unless they pass tests. Um, and we're, we're, if you go look at the open issues on Ember, um, they they require a lot of discussion. Um, so if someone submits a pull request, there's usually a lot of feedback of like, can you tell us about use cases? Um, you know, how do you envision other people using this? Have you looked at these parts of the framework to follow similar patterns? Um, so we definitely, we definitely are very strict about pull requests. You'll never see a pull request that'll, you know, RM, RF, user local uh, in Ember. Knock on wood. Oh, geez. <laughs> that, that drama. Yeah, but, but that's, it's you're a not in a volcano, you're, on, you're in a pirate ship, captain by captain, terrible code. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, but that's a confidence builder for me because I can look at the API and say, okay, they've described it this way and they have a test that verifies that it behaves this way. So anyway, Jameson, I think you had another question. Yeah, I remember hearing about the um, Ember router and how cool it was and being too dumb to understand what it meant. I, I like glanced through blog posts and was like, oh, this is hard. I have stuff to do. I'll come back when I have more time. But it, it sounded really cool. Do you want to talk about how the Ember router works? Yeah, definitely. I think the router is actually probably one of the, the most important features of the framework. Um, so w- it, when we say... It's funny that you say that because didn't you say that it just got put in like six or seven weeks ago? Yeah, it, uh, it, it, was, a, it was a thing that people were solving. So 
I'll explain a little bit about the router, what the router does, um, and how we've actually we've actually had a router almost since day one. So, when most people say router, like a backbone router, what what they really mean is like a, a URL string and then an anonymous function callback that gets executed when the browser uh, matches that string, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and in Ember, we actually drive application state uh, through a formal state manager. So if you're not not familiar with uh, with things like state machines, um, the learning curve can be can be pretty high. But I think you should learn what a state machine is anyway. I think once you once you learn it, uh, you'll be start you'll start using state machines in all sorts of projects. Um, so I even use you know state machines in my Rails applications quite frequently. Um, so we've had a state manager to manage application state um, for quite some time. But the request that kept coming in was like, okay, how do you how do you tie this to URLs? How do you how do you update a URL when a state changes? Uh, and there were some third party libs uh, that were doing that, and we finally rolled that functionality into the framework as a core uh, core concept. So essentially, what what the router does for us as a state manager is uh, you define a finite number of states that your application can be in, and these can be nested, and then portions of your templates have dynamic sections which we call outlets. Uh, attached to them. And when a user takes some action that would trigger a state change, these outlets can be dynamically filled with new content. Um, And you can have as many outlets as you want in a template. They can be nested infinitely deeply. And it becomes an extremely expressive way uh, to describe applications. It's kind of hard to explain with, you know, mouth noises, but um, visually, uh, you can explain it pretty, pretty simply. Um, You know, if only I had a virtual whiteboard I could share. Right. So, so, so state machines, oh. my understanding with state machines is, well, and I was a, an electrical engineering major in college and we dealt with this all the time, but you have pretty simple state machines that, you know, just you just move from one state to the next to the next. And you can basically be in just one state at a time or you can have different components maybe in different states. But do you, can you roll back data and stuff? We talked to uh, a developer behind History.js. And uh, so I'm wondering when you roll back, can you roll back both like the the name of the state and the data to to a former state or is it just state changed? Uh, so if you're using Ember data, which is like a sub framework uh, associated with Ember for doing uh, server client uh, data synchronization, uh, yeah, you can roll back data changes. Um, in fact, locally, uh, Changes happen to objects basically in the browser, um, and then you can, as part of an exit condition on a state, say whether you want to uh, commit those changes in a transaction or whether you want to just roll them back to what they were before the person entered the state. So when when I hear router, like most applications, routers just match URLs to some kind of function that gets called that like renders a view or, or does some functionality or whatever. And then you talk about a state machine. I have a hard time. I mean understanding how, how that works and how it's different than just a regular router. So, go ahead. I don't know, can you revisit that again? Does that make sense? No, it, it does, and I struggle to explain this to people because it is, it, it, it is a subtle and nuanced thing and it's very hard to explain verbally. Cause, cause um, you could think of, I mean, you could think of a regular, like the backbone router as a state machine where there's just one start state and then the end state is just the route. So there's only... a there's like one little state at the beginning that has a bunch of different arrows that all point to the, the I don't know, the page that you get routed to. And then every time you, you revisit a route, you just go back to that start state and go to the next state. Um, that, I mean, yeah, that is basically how it works. Um, I, man, I wish there was a, a great way of explaining this. Uh, 
uh, maybe I just need to write a write an article about it and use use some pictures because visually it makes a ton of sense. Um, I think as a community, Ember's really struggled in explaining this to people and how expressive of a, of a pattern it is. Um, probably probably the closest analogy I can think of is like the NVC pattern and how splitting things out to like a router and then having particular control as controllers like that, that wasn't new in rails, but that became an extremely expressive way to talk and talk about and organize applications and explaining it to someone who was like, well, I don't understand what the difference is because, you know, in a PHP application, when you go to a particular URL, a particular PHP file loads and parses, and I don't see what the difference is. And man, it's just tough to talk about and explain. Right. So um, Jameson asked a really good question in the back channel chat, and Yehuda's also in there and replying. But uh, Jameson, can you ask your question? Because I, I think it's something that we really ought to talk about. Yeah. So just to revisit what we were talking about earlier, I, I think I've been thinking about it while we were talking about other stuff. And I think my my hang-up on, on large frameworks like this is I feel like the time I spend learning the framework is time that I'm not spending on becoming a domain expert in the problem I'm trying to solve. So if I, if I have to spend such a long time learning the ins and outs of, of the framework solutions to problems, that's like less time thinking about what users need. And you heard her replied that it probably shouldn't take me that long to learn it, so I may be doing it wrong. But he, he said that if you're solving all these problems yourself, you're thinking about them anyways. And um, if you're using a framework, you're just seeing their solutions to problems that you might not have encountered yet. So it might be a little bit strange, but if you do a large enough app, you're going to find those problems anyways. So I don't know. Does that make sense? It does. And I yeah. think I think it just boils down again to if, you know, if, if Ember isn't solving enough of the right pain points for you, then then yeah, you're wasting time learning about things you don't need. But if if it solves enough of the pain points for you, then you'll learn how to solve those problems with Ember. And really, it's just a matter of learning the API instead of learning how to think about the problem and handling all the edge cases. Yeah, and it's, I mean, you have to remember that this this learning curve is, is, a, is a price you pay once, right? Like, yeah, you have to take some time and you're not solving domain problems in your application because you're learning Ember. But that that's just once, right? Like, so you take two weeks to learn Ember. It's not like you need to take two weeks to learn Ember for every application you write. And for particular types of application, it's really acting as a force multiplier. Whereas with Backbone, like, you need to learn these tricks and you may decide you've, you've written one application and you may decide that, like, the, the way we did it just wasn't right. We were leaking memory or we had zombie events or it was just it became hard at some point for our application to have a particular structure. Uh, talking about it became difficult. Now you need to resolve those problems again on your next application. And, you know, that could be true, too, if you just don't agree with the particular decisions that Ember's making as a framework. Um, it's always going to feel painful to you. But that's true of any framework. And, and usually the advice I give people is, like, just sit back and enjoy it, right? Like, there's, there's a team of 20, 30 people who are basically spending um, all day building up Ember to be really, really good as part of their work of building an application. And it might just be that Ember is, you know, just too early for people to jump in right now. But I don't think that's always going to be the case. Yeah. Does anyone else have anything to add or jump in with another question? So I just wanted to make a very dirty, dirty, dirty comparison for a second, which is I think that frameworks, in some sense, what? Does this podcast have the clean tag in iTunes? How how dirty is this? No, 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 no. It did until about five. (laughs) I'm going to compare it to WordPress. Okay. Okay. Oh, ouch. No, but 
so think about it. Like WordPress is not the right tool to solve every problem, but there's a community there that has managed to do something really well. And if you're building a website, do you want to use WordPress? Probably not. But it really suits a large group of people really well. And so I think the thing for the frameworks is when you're not looking to do very, very custom things, you're not looking to craft a site in an extremely customized way, then a framework can work really, really well. But the more specific you're trying to do, the more unique you are, the less perhaps your investment in learning a framework is worth. Like when I was working with Ruby on Rails, it was really great when I was first getting into it because it was easy to use, it was easy to get things set up. But then as I tried to get past the basics of it and really start customizing things very specifically for for unusual purposes, that's where it kind of broke down and I hit the wall of magic. The wall of magic. It's like this big rainbow shimmering curtain that you just run into and disappear. That's what I think <laughs> of when you say that. Yeah. I mean, it's developed. JavaScript's every, on the other side of that curtain. Not every tool is a pro- <laughs> Uh, and this this is a tough sell when you when you especially when you're approaching people who are sort of starting out programming. Like you're going to need to learn Ember and Backbone and probably Angular and D3 and a good game development library. Like this is just a cost you're going to have to pay because like yes, you could write a game in Backbone. Um, you know, learn how to use Canvas yourself. It'll be exactly as you want. Or even just plain JavaScript like Vim Adventures. That that's just plain old JavaScript. And he he just took on the work of figuring out how to draw to the canvas and do all that stuff himself. But if you plan on writing applications over time, like if you're making a career out of this, learning, you're not going to be hurt learning these tools. Even if all you get out of it is like, I picked up some neat tricks that I'm going to bring back to Backbone, but I don't see myself building the style of application that Ember really targets. And, and that, that's a fine lesson to learn too, but like you can't, it's very hard when people like uh, they don't have, they don't know how to invest their time, especially with so many products that seem like they're competitors. Yeah. So I have just a, one more little thing to contribute on this. Yesterday I had like a really tiny problem to solve that required a teeny tiny HTTP server. And I was like, I don't want to use Express for this. I'm just going to write it in Node with no libraries or anything, just because I haven't done this in a long time. And it took me like 40 times as long to do. Like it would have been five seconds if I just used Express and, and made a little route and returned stuff. But abstractions are nice. And it's also nice to go without them every once in a while to see, like, I, I ended up writing a little crappy implementation of a router, even though there's already a perfectly good router in Express. And I don't know. So I, I can kind of agree with you that it's, there's, there's definitely value in, in using abstractions that other people have built up. And to comment on that, I want to add, I mean, take a look at the, the, the idea of the Canvas library, right? So it's really helpful to do both, right? It's helpful to have a library and it's helpful to have done it yourself. Which approach works best for you kind of depends on the way your brain works, right? Maybe it's easier for you to get into a library that does stuff with Canvas and then start pounding at it on your own so that you really know what's going on under the hood. But there's a right case for both. It's not like one or the other. There's going to be times when you want to write things by hand 
because you either get some particular benefit or because it's going to help you learn and appreciate better what the framework is doing when it's the right framework for that job. Right. But you just have to be aware of all of the constraints on your project. So, so if you are time constrained, then spending 40 times as long doing something doesn't make sense. But if it's a mental exercise, then maybe it does. So, but I'm going to argue that because I, I have found that it takes me just as long to learn someone's framework to do something generally as it does to build the pieces I need myself. Like the investment in the documentation is, it seems like it's pretty equal. So it's a matter of whether you're going to be using the tool over and over again. I mean, that's a bold statement. You're not, you're not just talking obviously about Ember right now, but just tools in general, right? Like to assume that the amount of time and effort that went into a library uh, can be reproduced in a much smaller amount of time by you just for the specific things you need. I find usually what that means is I'm forgetting things or there are implementation details that I need to be thinking about that I'm not even aware that I need to be thinking about. And and they won't come up until after I've launched and weird bugs start cropping up. And and one of the benefits of using other people's code is like they've done that. This, you know, like other people's code, especially when it's been used in production, has been battle tested. It's seen weird situations you don't think are going to come up. Um, so I, I had a friend years and years and years ago when Rails first came out. He's like, I have a, I have a PHP framework I use myself that was kind of like that. I'm like, oh, so how do you, how do you handle like the cross-site scripting stuff? And it was just like blank-faced, just a, not a concept he had ever heard of. And I'm not claiming that I had, you know, was some sort of security expert, but Rails, I think for a lot of people, brought those to the forefront. And before, people were unaware of various security things or strategies you can take uh, to mitigate security problems. It's Yeah, it's like I said before, they, they solve problems you might not have thought of yet. Um, so it seems like cruft or, or extra code or I don't know. Yeah. But it's useful. Yeah. And I won't argue with that. I think that that's also accurate. I guess I was a little overbold in that statement, but I certainly have felt like there have been times when the amount of time I've spent looking through documentation and then poking through code, especially if there happens to be a bug in the framework, it seems sometimes, it, uh, sometimes pretty similar. Right. There are no bugs in Ember, though, so we're fine. <laughs> so, oh, so, I'm going to ask about the Ember event loop, because I've heard cool things about that. And it also seems talk- wild that there's an, event, just- an event loop inside an event loop. I was going to say, is, doesn't JavaScript provide you with an event loop? So what's the difference? You know, it, it does, and we, we... Oh, God, Yehuda's going to kill me. Yeah, we provide our own... We provide- <laughs> Um, you know, you, you should probably have him jump on to talk about it because it's really part of the framework that I'm sort of least familiar with. Um, I, I definitely spend a lot of my time more at the user-focused parts of the framework, so the router and the view hierarchy. Um, I just trust that the run loop works. So, do you do you know why there is a run loop though? Because I don't know that. You should bring Yehuda on because I, I think he'll give a better explanation uh, of that. We're like perfectly picking the questions to, to mess you up. Okay, what's an easy question that we can ask you that you can answer really well? I, I want to ask about the, the APIs really quickly. Um, you said sure. that it's not, it's not even in beta yet, um, but people are still using it, and, and I, can, I can understand you know, the draw if it solves enough, enough of the right problems for you. But is the, is the API, how much of the API is actually you know, solid and sort of intuitive versus uh, how much of it is still sort of uh, an exploration of the problems and, and figuring out how to solve them before we actually fine-tune the API to communicate what we need. 
it's uh, we don't discuss uh, pre-release software with the public, and uh, no, it's uh, that's a hard question to answer. I think the the router is probably the last bit that that needs to have the API uh, tweaked, and we have some really good feedback from people who are using the current version. Um, other than that, I'd say the API is very very solid, and um, and actually, you know, despite the size of the framework, the I, I wish there was a way in documentation to sort of better tease this out, not just for Ember, but for everything. Like, there are definitely parts of the framework that you, you need to learn very quickly and you'll use a lot. Um, those are pretty small. Like, the, the amount of total surface area in Ember is quite big, but the amount that you're going to use on a daily basis or while learning is actually not significantly larger than Backbone. But it, it gets lost in the noise just because we don't do a great job of saying, like, all right, pay special attention to the router, you're going to want to use this part of the API. Um, but, like, you know, how views clean themselves up, uh, how templates render uh, all the various helpers that you could use. Like you, you, th- these, these are nice to have, and it's good to know that they exist when you run into these sort of specific problems that other people have had. Um, but the actual parts of the API that you're going to use very, very frequently are pretty tiny. All right. Do you want to talk about those those major parts that you need to know to use? You mentioned the router, but what else are they? S- Definitely Ember's object system. Um, you're going to want to learn how to create and uh, new instances of objects and create sort of reusable constructors for objects. We call them classes, but you know people get really really upset when you mention classes in JavaScript. Um, which is <laughs> go back and you go back and you read about sort of the initial theory and and design of prototypal languages. Actually, like Ruby's object system is very, very close to those goals. Like, prototypal systems were essentially a reaction to uh, very strict hierarchical class systems like like C++ or Java had. But, like, in Ruby, the class is itself an object. And same with JavaScript, right? The constructor is itself an object. It happens to be a function. And so the object system, you're going to want to learn how to create objects and, and classes. We'll call them classes. I'm going to get flack for it, but that's all right. Um, and then how to set and get properties. Um, the binding... So- Oh, go ahead. Sorry, keep going. Uh, the binding syntax, which is actually pretty simple. You take a normal property name like name, and you append binding, capital B, um, and then you can give it a string path that points to a different part of the application, and then those two objects will always stay synchronized. Um, that's pretty much all that you need to know about binding at a at a typical layer. Like If you want to dig deep and see how bindings are being stored internally and how they affect the run loop and when they get scheduled, you can totally do that, but it's not really necessary on a daily basis to use it. Um, you definitely want to become familiar with handlebars, but handlebars you know, is used by a number of projects that's you know, by no means Ember-specific. There are some Ember-specific usages of it, so we have a few helpers for embedding views inside the template of another view. Um, to get that sort of deeply nested view hierarchy working. And that's pretty much it. Everything else is, you know, you use it when particular problems come up. And if you're having an issue, try searching through the API to see if we've provided a solution. Um, if not, it's a thing that you need to solve yourself. Ooh, I have, a, I have a question about rendering and nested views. Just interested to see how Ember solves it. So if, if you have a bunch of nested views and you change something in like the daddy view, like the super parent view, how, how does it handle re-rendering all the child views? Or does it need to do it? Does it just know that only stuff in the parent view changed and it leaves all the events and, and templates and stuff the same in the child views? It's a, it's a second part. So if you, um, we often get flack for this too. If you look at uh, an Ember application in the wild and view the source, you're going to see script tags uh, all over the place. Um, we use a library called Metamorph for determining. So essentially we wrap 
parts of the application that we know are bound to data and may need to update in in these metamorph script tags and then use either the browser's native range ability or you know what we've faked out in the metamorph library um, to replace just those parts of the view that need to get updated. Um, so if you're in a parent view and that has children and that has children and that has children and a particular part of the parent view changes, only that would re-render. That's sweet. Yep. All right. Well, uh, we need to get to the picks. We're about out of time. So uh, let's go ahead and do that, and we will have AJ go first. Oh, wonderful. So since I mentioned that I am in the DJ sphere, I'd like to give a shout-out to Promo Only, which if you're considering doing DJing and you want legal copies of the music that are allowed to be used for whatever you want, because there's certain licensing restrictions on stuff like iTunes and then CDs. Maybe some of them have different licensing terms than others or something. It's a little wonky. But anyway, Promo Only is the subscription service where you basically get all of the music that hits the radio for 40 bucks a month. So it's pretty decent. Of course, 90% of the mov- music that hits the radio isn't worth 40 bucks a month. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's good to have it legally and, and know that you get it like, boom, the day it comes out. So it's kind of cool. All right, Jameson, what are your picks? So my pick is Tiny TCOS. It's Tiny Transactions on Computer Science. It's a computer science journal where the articles fit inside a tweet. Uh, and it's really funny because they have abstracts that are like half a page long. And then the actual article is like a sentence. Uh, it's pretty sweet. I'll put the link in. I don't understand most of what they're about, but it's just kind of funny that you have these like really dense nuggets of information that fit inside a tweet that are new novel computer science research. Okay, cool. Um, so I have a couple of picks. Um, the first pick is uh, Handbrake. I don't know if I picked it before, but I am pretty happy with it. Um, I was able con- to convert... Um, well, it rip and then convert several of the DVDs that we have over to, I'm not even sure what MKV means, but that's the format that it converted it to. And then our Blu-ray player can play them. And so, um, I actually can then get in and, uh, you know, just play it on the TV instead of on my iPad or something. Speaking of our legal media, (laughs) legal media. Yeah. Well, I own the DVDs, so I don't see why there would be a problem. I'm not redistributing them or anything. If you are, I know. If you are going to redistribute them, um, I'm not going to admit to having used this for any content that I don't own, but a terrific way of getting content that uh, I have used for for legal things is BitTorrent. And on the Mac, uh, you can get a program called Transmission, which is really awesome. So... Um, if you, if you are looking for, uh, content out there, I think you can get like the Ubuntu install discs and stuff. Yeah. I've used it for that a couple of times. There've been a few games that like the humble bundles that come out, mm-hmm. those, uh, will release torrents as well. And that's really nice. Yeah. It's, it's super nice. So, um, I really like BitTorrent as far as, a uh, transfer protocol. My last pick is, and there's kind of a funny story behind this and maybe I shouldn't tell it because, it happened during a client meeting, but we had this estimation meeting, and uh, it takes it ta- it it was a what it was scheduled for two or three hours, and it wound up taking five or six hours. 
And uh, honestly, two or three hours is way too long anyway. So um, we made a rule as a team that you we would only discuss a story for five minutes, and then we would drop it dead and basically, you know, not deal with it. So um, I I got fed up with six hour meetings, and so I actually went and bought a Presto digital timer off of Amazon, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. And uh, the project manager actually threatened to reach through the phone and break my uh, my digital or my my timer because it kept going off every five minutes. But honestly, I, I find the the digital timer must much less obnoxious than a six hour meeting. So anyway, it did keep us on track most of the time, so it was kind of nice. So I'll I'll put the link to that as well. Trek, what are your picks? Uh, I I have three. It picks the hardest because I'm mauled by a bear is less obnoxious than a six-hour meeting. You what? <laughs> Being mauled by a bear is less obnoxious than a six-hour meeting. Yes. You guys ready? Can Can you get bears over uh, Amazon Prime? Part. That way, I can get mauled and not go to the meeting. Anyway, uh, Trek, what are your picks? So, so picks are hard for me because I, I actually, um, despite the curmudgeon I play on the internet, I actually really like a lot of stuff. Um, so I've, I've pared this down to just three. One is uh, a framework for the browser for writing games called CraftyJS. I've just started to delve into game programming just as a hobby. Um, and I, I don't know if this is the best one or even a good one. It's just the one that people kept recommending to me. Um, and I've been having a lot of fun with it. And man, if you want to get your head into a totally different space than what typical like web or client development or server development is like, go do game development because it will be a bunch of stuff that you've never even thought about before um, and, and really just sort of keeps you agile in, in the brain meets about uh, thinking about things. Um, so craftyjs.com is that one. Uh, the second one is About Face 3, The Essentials of Interaction Design. Pretty much the canonical interaction design book. Really, really good. This is the third edition. It came out like 2007, 2008. Uh, you know, send a link to it if you if you want to put it in the show notes. Uh, and so I mentioned this because I think the style of applications that brought me to Ember have a lot more to do with uh, client side development as like a serious craft. And it's it's a fantastic book. Some of the examples are old. The first edition was from like 1996, um, but still a, a very very good book. Um, I'd say it's like 10% of a degree in HCI is just reading this book. And my third pick, uh, so this involves things that normally would make me cringe. Uh, it's a self-published steampunk short story. Um, and I, I think normally that would be just awful. But it's called uh, Tucker, Tucker Teaches the Clockies to Copulate. Um, it's DRM-free. Oh, <laughs> and th- this author did everything right. Extremely well written. It reads, uh, you know, it's poignant and, and funny, and it reads like sci-fi from the golden age. Really, really good stuff. DRM-free indie author. He got an illustrator. The illustrations are just absolutely gorgeous. Um, and it basically, this is an example of what I want publishing to be. It's everything I think self-publishing should become in the future, and it's a dollar ninety-nine. Cool. All right. Well, um, I think that's it. Uh, are there any announcements you guys want to share? I'm assuming the companies you work for are still hiring. Skype sucks. Yes. All right. That's true. And uh, also, I'm going to be doing the Intro to Coffee Script um, online training. The early bird price is good through October 31st, which is, I think is actually going to be before <laughs> this podcast goes out. But anyway, you can go sign up at intro2coffeescript.eventbrite.com, and uh, then you can get trained on how to use CoffeeScript. So with that, we'll wrap it up. Uh, Thanks for coming, Trek. Thanks, guys. It's been fun. And uh, we'll catch you all next week.